My name is Daniel Harris. I serve as the college pastor of The View. As our director Jacob said a few moments ago, we are just real and imperfect people, but we're worshiping a real and perfect God. I got saved at 21 years old. I was a college student. I was face down on the ground at a park at midnight in tears, broken over my life, broken over where I was. And it, it wasn't a church that changed me. It wasn't a person in this world that changed me. It was Jesus Christ that radically changed my life. A Middle Eastern rabbi from 2,000 years ago, a.k.a. the Messiah of the world, I met him when I was 21 years old, the day after Christmas, got saved, and I haven't been the same since. I want to encourage you wherever you are. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know him as your Lord? Because I know this isn't how we usually start sermons, but I know there's people watching all across the nation. I want to tell you from the very beginning, Jesus Christ can save you from any sin or stronghold you are in. And there's a lot of college students around the city right now that will testify to his greatness and his glory. He is good. And I'm so thankful that you are watching tonight. Uh, we have been doing a mini-sermon series on leadership. We're going to continue that tonight. But not only that, we have first-time viewers that are watching. When we meet at The View, when we're in our building, we always tell the guests that they are the most important people in the room. Because we want to get to know you. If you are a guest, there will be a time at the end of our service where a phone number will come on the screen and you can text your name to that number. And we would love to connect you with some of the Zoom life groups we have meeting right now online. So we're so thankful that you're here with us. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. I have my disciple study Bible that I use. Open up to Mark chapter 6. Wherever you are, I know some people are watching alone right now. I know some people are with their family. Bring your family in your room. Get the siblings in there with you. Bring your brother and sister in. Mark chapter 6 is where we are tonight. Now, I don't know if there has ever been a time in your life, there has been in mine. I want you to think for a moment as you're finding Mark chapter 6. I also want to encourage you to get a notebook, something you can take notes with. I have a lot of notes tonight. <laughs> Praise God. I want you to think, has there ever been a time in your life when someone looked down on you? Has there ever been a time when someone looked at you because of your job, your clothes, the way you talk, your parents, maybe what your parents do for a living? Has there ever been a, type, a time in your life when someone looked down on you? Because there's been many times in my life where people have looked down on me. I've had times in my life where people look down on me because of the clothes I wear, the way I talk, the certain jobs that I worked. It's happened. And I'm sure it's happened to you. Guess what? It's not a good feeling. <laughs> Some of you have family members that work hard jobs and people have looked down on them before. It's not a good feeling at all. But on the flip side, there's also the times when I have looked down on other people. I'm not an angel. I'm not a saint. I make mistakes. You say, Daniel, you're a pastor. Aren't you perfect? Far from it. <laughs> I make mistakes all the time and I have looked down on people who God calls his children. <laughs> And if you're honest with me tonight, wherever you are, college student, I think that you probably have too. There's been times in your life where you haven't hung out with a certain person because they don't meet your social standard. <laughs> There's been times in your life where you're, you're like, Daniel, you're getting on me early, man, slow down. There's been times in your life where you've looked down on people just like I have. It's not fun. It doesn't feel good. It hurts. And you could not be any less like Christ when you are looking down on someone. <laughs> I want to tell you about a time tonight in the Gospels. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a time in the Gospels when Jesus Christ was looked down on because of his earthly job. Can you imagine? 
There's a time in Jesus' life where he was teaching where he literally got a laughed at and people were offended that he was teaching something because of his earthly job. They looked at this man they said, how in the world can this man be teaching me when he just works this job? You say, Daniel, what job is that? You see, many of you already know this, but while Jesus was on this earth, he worked as a carpenter. <laughs> he worked an earthly job of a carpenter. He wasn't a businessman. He wasn't the CEO of Google. He was a carpenter. <laughs> and the question I like to ask myself, man, if I'm honest, I know we got a lot of followers of Jesus around the world, but if I saw Jesus, a Middle Eastern rabbi, walking by who was a carpenter, claiming to teach the way, I wonder how many of us would really follow him or how many of us would look down on him. See, tonight I'm beginning a two-part sermon. I'm excited about it. My wife is. I've never done a two-part sermon, so I'm excited about that. Tonight's part one, next week is part two. And the title, if you're taking notes, is The Carpenter. Write that at the top of your notes. The title is The Carpenter, part one. Make sure you put part one on there as well. I don't want you getting confused. And our college students are. They don't have clear direction. They're like, where are we? The Carpenter, part one. And I'm going to give you four points tonight on that, and I'm going to give you four points next week. Now, a carpenter, I want you to write this down. A carpenter is someone who we know, of course, uses wood to build and repair structures and buildings. That is the role of a carpenter. Now this can, if we're honest, give us incredible insight into Jesus' leadership. It's no coincidence he was a builder. Because he came to this earth to build a kingdom. <laughs> so much symbolism. Now what I want to do is, I want to ask the question, what can carpentry... Teach us about Jesus' spiritual leadership. The things we know about carpenters and what they have to be able to do as a leader, does that translate over to Jesus' spiritual leadership? Because I believe there's a lot of passages that show us incredible stuff. I hope that you have a pen because I do want you to take notes. Look with me at Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and came to his hometown. He's home now. He's on the home front. He's back in Bartlett. He's back in Cordova. He's back in Nazareth here. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. They asked, look at the questions they asked. They say, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles being performed by his hands? They're scratching his head. They're scratching their head. They don't understand. And then look at verse 3. The reasoning for their question is answered. It says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this just the carpenter? Verse 3 goes on to say that they were offended by him. The son of Mary, the carpenter. <laughs> Who is this? If you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to write down, number one, the carpenter was hated on. Number one, the carpenter was hated on. Say, Daniel, that's a 2020 point. You're absolutely right. This, the carpenter was hated on. Now, there's something fascinating here when you talk about Jewish culture, especially at this time in Israel. This is so important. Don't miss this. There's a lot of uh, an impact here by this. Robbie Gallaty out of Nashville argues that Jesus Christ may have been more of a stonemason than he was a carpenter. And here's why. What it means is that he would have worked with, wood, with stones more than he would have worked with wood. 
Now that's fascinating for many reasons. Galatea studied Jewish culture and argues that the Greek word here used for carpenter, which is tecton, is closely related to the word craftsman. Now in Israel at this time, the majority of homes were constructed out of stone. It was all stones, stone, stone buildings, stone sculptures. And where Jesus was in Nazareth with his father Joseph, only three miles from Nazareth was a town called Zipporah. In Zipporah, it was thriving by stone buildings and stone sculptures. I mean, they were literally thriving. Now, because this town, Zipporah, was only three miles away from Nazareth, it's very likely Jesus and his father Joseph would have had work to do for that town. Three miles is a short commute. So because of that, it's very possible that Jesus Christ could have worked with wood, but it's also possible that he worked with stone. Now, this doesn't change much. But it is very fascinating when you take that idea and think that Jesus could have been a stonemason. He could have worked with stones. And then you look at Luke chapter 20, verse 17. Look what Luke chapter 20, verse 17 says. When Jesus is questioned about his authority, Jesus looked at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. <laughs> wow. So Jesus here is fulfilling a prophecy that he is not just a stone, but he is the cornerstone. Now remember the cornerstone, you know this as well as I do, the cornerstone is the central and first stone laid for a building. Everything else centers around it. The cornerstone is the, the center of everything for that foundation. And Jesus here is calling himself the cornerstone. Now he's saying he's not just the stone, he is the cornerstone. Think about that idea. Think about that idea of stone, Mason. And now think spiritually for this world. Look at Colossians 1.16. It says, for everything was created by him, Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. <laughs> How cool is it to think, and this is just where you nerd out a little bit about the Bible because it's amazing. How cool is it to think that it's possible Jesus worked with stones, and not only that, he is the cornerstone of this whole world. <laughs> That's amazing imagery. That's incredible how many layers there are to this Bible. Can I ask you something? In your life, is Jesus the cornerstone, or is he just some stone? <laughs> I mean, is he the centerpiece of everything that your life evolves around, or is he just one of those pieces revolving around you? See, there's a lot that we can take from this, whether he worked with wood or stones, but what's true is this. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this world. Do not get it twisted. You and I were created for him, through him, to glorify him, for us to revolve around him, not for him to revolve around us, which means we do whatever he wants. He doesn't do whatever we want. So is he the cornerstone or is he just some stone? That's the question I want you to think about in your mind. Jesus is being rejected in his own hometown. <laughs> you want to talk about being looked down upon. He's being looked down on by the people that are supposed to love and support and build him up. I just got off of a Zoom call with one of our leaders where he has been struggling because certain people around him do not support him in the call God has put on his life. The people he's closest to are not in support of what God has put on his heart. Can you imagine? I'm sure that's what Jesus was feeling when he's teaching and people are questioning him because of his family, because of his job as a carpenter. They were offended by him. I want to tell you something, college students. 
the way these worldly leaders were living was so different from what Jesus was teaching. So different. See, they were a, my cup is clean on the outside, but it's filthy on the inside. In other words, they had the right appearance. They were missing the meaning of it on the inside, though. And Jesus is saying to them, he's teaching them that it's all about your heart. It's not about the outside. It's about the inside. Because whatever's on the inside will eventually come out on the outside. It's so foreign to the worldly leaders. And they feel threatened by Jesus. The reason why Jesus was persecuted and and tortured and beaten is because the world, the worldly leaders felt threatened by Jesus. And many of them were religious leaders who wanted to hold on to tradition more than they wanted to hold on to the gospel of their Messiah. It's crazy. It's wild. They tear him down for being a carpenter. Well, one thing I've been telling our leaders is that God was using and preparing and teaching Jesus and teaching us about carpentry to prepare him to be the Messiah. Now, that's a big statement. Carpentry mirrors Jesus' spiritual leadership. That's a big statement. Whenever you hear big statements, filter it through multiple passages in the Bible. Just because you're watching these streams and somebody says something that sounds good to the ear, man, don't just believe it. Search for it in Scripture, man. When I say something, let's search for it in Scripture. Do your homework. Do we see other areas in life where God called people to a certain training or a certain field that then mirrored their further calling? I want to pose two to you. First one is Moses. You see, Moses in the Old Testament, this is so important. Please don't miss this. Wherever you are, if somebody's talking in your house again, tell them to shh, you know, quiet down. It's important. I'm talking to you, Paul. I'm just kidding. Moses in Exodus, after he killed the Egyptian, was then taken by God as a shepherd. For 40 years. Now remember, when Moses was a shepherd, he would have had time to think. He would have watched God's creation. He would have learned how to lead sheep and how to have patience. It was after that 40 years that then God called Moses to go and save his sheep from slavery in Egypt. You see, if Moses was not faithful with the sheep, he wouldn't have been faithful with God's people. I believe that. You see, King David, a few books in the Old Testament later, Where was King David when they came looking for him to anoint him as king? Shepherding the sheep. (laughs) You see, it was training. God will give you something small to prepare you for that which is large. But if you're not faithful with that which is small, don't expect him to give you that which is large. (laughs) See, for me, the first group of people I ever led was a seventh grade church basketball team. I hope they're not watching because I'm about to say something that might hurt their feelings. They were awful at basketball. (laughs) They were uncoordinated. They couldn't chew bubble gum and walk at the same time. They were really, really bad at basketball, but they were great kids, and I loved them to death. Before I could ever be a pastor and shepherd his sheep through the ministry, God was teaching me, even as a lost individual, how to grow 12 seventh graders, how to lead 12 seventh graders. I fully believe that if I had not been faithful with those 12 seventh graders, God would not have given me the responsibility to be your college pastor. So for you, if this quarantine is training, the question is, are you allowing yourself to be trained or are you fighting that training? Because God is always preparing us for something. The way we get to it is by being faithful where we are with what he's given us. David had to develop a heart to lead God's sheep before he had to have a heart to lead God's people. Now listen, I know many of you are starting to share the gospel with people. We just talked to one of our leaders 
who's sharing the gospel with his coworkers at a bank right now in the midst of the coronavirus. I know you are sharing Jesus. Listen, sometimes when you share the gospel, people might get offended. It's just truth. They might get offended like these people do when Jesus starts teaching. Listen, not everybody is ready to accept the gospel. And the gospel is offensive to people who don't want to repent. Now the question is, when you start sharing Jesus with those people who do not want to repent, how do you respond to that situation? Does it make you fearful? Does it make you doubtful over your own salvation? Does it make you doubt your faith? Or do you realize, hey, my job's not to save that lost person. It's just to share and plant seeds with them. That's why at The View, we celebrate the sharing of the gospel as much as we celebrate the saving of the gospel. God has called us to share, and we want to share. They reject him. They reject Jesus in his own hometown. Can I tell you why these worldly leaders reject Christianity in our world today? If I could be real with you, not preaching to you, I just want to talk to you. Can I tell you why Christianity faces so much backlash in our world? If I can be real with you, it's because Jesus Christ is preaching repentance to an unrepentant world. The reason why Christianity is always under attack is because Jesus is preaching forgiveness to an unforgiving world. That's exactly what he was doing right here in Mark chapter 6. And it's exactly what you and I are doing through the Holy Spirit today. Not only that, when I'm living in selfishness, I don't want to repent either. It happens to us. Jesus' leadership wasn't praised by man. And as we go through this leadership series, I hope that you've gotten this book somehow. I hope that you're reading this. Man, let me tell you, his leadership was not praised by man. And for you and I, you've got to ask the question, are you doing this to be clapped for by people? Leaders all across the city, look at me. Is this ministry just to be clapped for by people? Me and my wife went to New York right before it became the epicenter. We were in New York over New Year's, and uh, she was very happy I took her to see Wicked on Broadway. It was amazing. I loved it. It was phenomenal. It was, it was one of the best experiences of my life. Uh, the play was amazing, and at the end of the play, everybody was clapping and cheering and hollering. They were hooping and hollering. I mean, they were getting crunk in this theater for this play. I never seen anything like it. It was live. And in this theater, they're clapping for this play. I've always noticed something about clapping, though. I know you've noticed it, too. Whether it's in a movie theater, a play, or at a sports game, here's the thing about clapping. It always ends. As good as that play was, People stopped clapping when they were ready to move on to whatever entertained them next. <laughs> See, if you're doing this for the applause of man, they'll clap for you until they get tired of it and move on to whatever will entertain them next. No matter how good that entertainment show was, <laughs> I know this ain't going to bring in viewers, but we cannot water down the gospel at a time like this. We can't do it. Hear me, college student, don't ever trade the approval of Christ for a moment of applause from people. Don't ever do it. Don't trade an eternity of approval for, from Christ for a moment of applause from people. I gotta keep moving. Number two, the carpenter has vision. We know that a carpenter has vision. Do we see scriptural evidence for this in Jesus' leadership? Carpenters have to have vision. Now, what's amazing about a carpenter is that they envision something. Watch this. They envision something that's not quite there yet. 
You see, their job is to build, but first they have to look at an open range of land and see a building that could be there before it actually is. The same way a painter, an artist would look at a canvas and see their beautiful work of art before it's actually there. That's a carpenter's job. You see, if a carpenter, watch this, if a carpenter sets out to build a house without first having a vision for it, how will he know when his work is complete? See, for Jesus Christ, when he set out to build his kingdom to save us all from sins, he had a vision, and that's how he knew his work was complete. To tell us, die, it is finished. Jesus knew exactly how. So God, not only in the beginning before creation, saw what the world could be and then spoke it into creation through Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ, while he was on this earth, looked at the disciples and saw not just who they are, but he saw who they could be. (laughs) You see, Jesus looked at this world that was being ran by sin, that was in darkness completely. He had a vision for this kingdom. Now for you personally, Jesus has already casted the vision for your life. Whew, thank goodness. Hallelujah, man. You don't have to come up with a vision for your life. You don't have to come up with some ginormous plan or scheme like Jesus has given it to you. He's lobbed it up to you. He's waiting for you to spike it. I'm trying to remember what they do in volleyball. Spike it. I was like, man, what are you doing in volleyball? He's given you the vision. He's made it very clear what you and I are supposed to do. So your job is not to go and find some vision that you create. It's to fulfill Jesus Christ's vision for your life. He tells us, go and make disciples. Now, I know you remember when Jesus gave the Great Commission, a very popular passage, everybody knows it. After resurrecting from the grave, Jesus appears to the disciples, 11 of them, and he casts vision to them is what he does. He gives them the great commission. He tells them what is next. He said, I died on the cross and resurrected. Now here's what's next. Now what's amazing is, remember where the disciples were right before those verses. Context is so important here. Right before the great commission, the disciples had just witnessed, what we talked about yesterday, just witnessed their their leader be beaten, tortured, and crucified. They were hunkered up in a room with with the doors barred shut. And they were probably scared and terrified. And now here they are, Jesus has appeared to them, and he's telling them the Great Commission. Now look at Matthew 28, 16 to 20. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, look at this, but some doubted. Let's stop right there for a minute. Some doubted, underline that. Now what's amazing, this is so important. I think some of them may have been doubting the resurrection. But in studying the context and understanding the setting here, what I would pose to you is similar to what Robbie Gallanty has posed before. I believe many of these disciples were doubting themselves. They were doubting their ability to do what Jesus was calling them to do. They were doubting it. They had self-doubt. They had self-fear. See, they had seen the resurrection. I think most of them believed the resurrection, but they were in fear and they were in doubt. Look what Jesus does. Jesus meets their self-doubt with his authority. See, Jesus will never meet your self-doubt with your authority, but he will always meet your self-doubt with his authority. When you're willing to go in his name, look at his response to them. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, I have authority in heaven, so I certainly have authority over this earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There is no racism here. Of all nations. 
baptizing them, in other words, teaching them to be vocal and proud and outspoken about their faith, to go public with their faith, to not just be private with their faith, but baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, here's his comfort. I am with you always to the end of the age. (laughs) Man, that's amazing. Jesus Christ believes in his vision for your life even when you doubt it. The problem is his vision may not be Ferraris and $100,000 stacks of money laying around. It might not be you getting whatever you want. It is, though, you helping others get the salvation that Jesus has given you. See, we are not short on evidence of Jesus Christ's resurrection. We are short on acceptance of his resurrection. (laughs) Many of us don't want to accept his resurrection, his great commission, his calling, his vision, because we're too hung up on our vision. But he's told you, go, make disciples. When will you stop sitting? When will I stop sitting? When will we stand up and go? The first step to go is you got to stand up. See, many of us can't go because we've never stood up for our faith. You want to go, stand up for your faith, and then the Holy Spirit will tell you where to go. Go, make disciples. You are called to be a disciple maker. Wow. I don't know about you, this quarantine... It's taught me to be thankful for technology. (laughs) The fact that we are able to do this right now is a huge blessing from the Lord, is it not? The fact that you can sit in your dorm room, your bedroom, your living room with your family and hear the word of God preach and then have discussion questions is simply a miracle. That's exactly what it is. It's a miracle. I've been amazed. You see, 20 years ago, this would be a different story. Uh, I'd be sending you cassette tapes. Uh, Maybe CDs 20 years ago. I'd be sending you cassette tapes and CDs for you to listen to, but now you get it streamed to your device. It's absolutely crazy. I was thinking about technology the other day, and my mind came across the the GPS that we all have on our phone, how we're able to GPS directions on where to go and how to get there, and and, and all these different things we take for granted. See, my dad is a little bit older than I am, not much. (laughs) He can remember a time when GPS was not a thing. Some of you, your parents can remember it too. Man, there was a time you had to pull out a map to figure out where you're going. You're pulling that thing out. Wife's trying to help the husband. Husband's getting mad. Like, put that thing away. I know where I'm going. (laughs) There was a time you had to use a map. (laughs) There was also a time you had to pull over and ask for directions. Some of you were like, I wouldn't dare. (laughs) I wouldn't dare pull over and ask somebody where I'm going. I'm going to get there one way or another, but I'm not going to ask somebody. For me, I know how I am. I'd be lost without GPS. Even places I've been to 20 times. I'm so dependent on GPS, I keep using GPS to go to the same place. Sometimes I GPS Bellevue. You see, I know how I am. But not just GPS, though, the places I've been to. I've realized how many places there are in the world, and I know that you'll relate to me on this one. I thought about how many places in the world I could never get to if it wasn't for this GPS. (laughs) You see, I, I wouldn't know how to get to certain locations out of state, certainly around the country. Uh, it would be hard to travel to places I've never been. It'd be virtually impossible because the GPS provides a roadmap. I want to tell you a great truth. I hope you're locked in with me. Listen, the biggest problem I've seen with Christian college students is that they have no goals. They don't set any goals in their spiritual life. And let me tell you something. A Christian without goals It's just like a driver without GPS. You will only reach places that you're comfortable going to. 
Can't put it any clearer. Without my GPS, I'm only going to go to places that's familiar. If I don't set goals as a Christian, I'm going to stay in the same familiar comfort zones over and over and over again. Because I have no roadmap. So you take away my roadmap on how to get to something, I can't get there. Without goals, you have no roadmap. You don't know how to get to the point of fulfilling the Great Commission. <laughs> it's amazing how, how clear the visual is. A GPS helps you reach new locations physically in a car. I got to tell you, goals will help you reach new spiritual locations in your life. <laughs> they will. Setting goals and living by them. You want to memorize more scripture? You don't just say that one day and then set out to memorize the whole book of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to memorize the whole thing. No, you set goals. This week I'm going to memorize James 1, 1 to 4. The reason many of us don't memorize scripture is because we don't take the time to write down that goal. We don't read the Bible. We don't pray because we have no spiritual goals. You want to make an impact on the world. You don't just set out and say, I'm going to make an impact on the world. No, you don't disciple 7 billion people. What you do is you start discipling three people, teach everything you've learned from the Lord to them, then they go and teach three other people, and it keeps going and going and going and going. And by the end of your life and the end of my life, this world will look so different. Do you have a roadmap? Do you have a GPS? Do you have any goals at all? I don't want to get on you too bad. I wish we were in person. I'd get on you a lot worse on this one. Do you have any goals in your spiritual life? Any goals that you're trying to reach? Or is now just a time where you roll out of bed, where you show up to your Bible instead of going to your Bible? <laughs> There's a big difference between showing up and going somewhere. Too many of us show up in our day and expect something to happen. No, what are your goals? How are you getting there? How are you fulfilling the vision of being a disciple and then making disciples? I want to give you this right here. I want you to write this down. Set aside relational goals. I want you to write that down. Set aside relational goals. You say, Daniel, what do you mean by that? Straight from Scripture. Ain't no magic here. Ain't no magic formula. Like, wow, I've never heard that before. Nope, you've heard this. <laughs> Set relational goals with Christ is A. Set relational goals with Christ. And what I mean by that is right there on the screen, God's word and prayer. You're like, wow, I never thought of that. Man, set goals on how you want to read this thing. Do you have any goals about this? Because I got goals. I know how I want to read this, how long I want to read it, when I want to finish it, how many hear journals I want. I got goals in place. Do you have any goals with this? And then not only that, but do you have goals with prayer? Do you have goals set up that you want to talk to the Lord in your closet for 30 minutes with the lights off? What are your goals? But not just that, set relational goals with people. Again, ain't no mind-blown thing to it, evangelism and discipleship. Daniel, I've got three people, three best friends that are lost, that don't know Jesus Christ. I want to see them get saved. That's good. But you and I just saying that isn't going to lead them to Christ. No, you and I got to set a plan into place. One, you need to pray for their soul. That's step one of your goal. But two, you need to set a goal of how and when you want to share the gospel with them. See, we can do all this talking all day long, man, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But until we put it on paper, we are not going to get there. You're driving without a GPS. And then discipleship. Man, as bluntly as I can ask you, is there anybody you are pouring into? Is there anybody you are loving and teaching and challenging and getting in the mud with? Anybody at all? Or is it just 
I'm a cloud. I just float through life. Man, you're missing out on one of the greatest joys Christ has ever called us to, to go and make disciples. You're missing out. God will prepare you if you pray, and he'll show you who to disciple. I got to move on. Number three, I love this one. The carpenter works well with raw materials. Number three, the carpenter works well with raw materials. Now, where do we see evidence for this in Scripture? If we know that carpenters have to work well with raw materials, do we see evidence of this in Scripture? Now, it's amazing how carpenters can take not only raw, but rough around the edge materials and then use them to create a masterpiece. It's quite amazing. It really is. I mean, it's, it's unreal. I can't do that. Now, there's not a clear analogy in this sermon. I want you to understand. Christ is the carpenter who takes raw and rough around the edge material and uses it to build something beautiful. He did that as a carpenter. I guarantee you that's what he did spiritually, and there's evidence all over for it. The first evidence I want to give you is, A, you and me. Start with what we know. Start with what we see right here. Jesus uses raw material. Example one is you and me. Listen, what kind of perspective do you have of yourself? <laughs> Lauren, because I'll tell you, Lauren's doing camera for us tonight. Jess is too, so thankful for them. Listen, I got to tell you, I realize, and my wife will be the first one to tell you too, I am raw material. <laughs> I'm rough around the edge, man. Like, I don't have it all figured out. Like, I know I probably, I, I, I don't do everything Jesus has told me to do. I'm like a stubborn child, man. A stubborn child just goes against the grain. Man, I go against the grain when I know Jesus is calling me to do something. Yet he still uses me to build his kingdom. I'm raw material. I already know it. Have you gotten to that point yet, Christian? Where you realize, hey, man, you might be saved, but you're still raw material. And Jesus, in his loving grace, is still using sinners like us to build a beautiful kingdom. That's carpentry. That's discipleship. That's the Lord's kingdom. On the flip side of that, you might be lost. You don't know Jesus. You know that you're living a lifestyle that's crazy. I mean, you already know you're raw material. Do you think that you're too far gone to be used by Jesus? Because, man, we all got testimonies. We all been in the thicket of it. We already know Jesus can use you. Oh, I've done too much. Done too much sin. Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He doesn't just save you from something. He saves you for something. One of my best friends used to say that. You and me, be the 12 disciples. Goodness gracious, you talk about scriptural evidence of Jesus using raw material. You could not have more of a ragtag group of people than the 12 disciples. Uh, can I remind you they were fishermen and tax collectors, something you already know. Uh, can I remind you that it was these people who Christ used to build his church? That's unreal. These ragtag group of people who, all, who constantly argued about which one of them were the greatest, who constantly, uh, one of them, the lead one, just denied Jesus three times. They were a ragtag group, and yet I love this. I wrote down, Christ used people no one else would use to build something no one else could build. And he'll do the same through you. He'll use people nobody else will use to build something nobody else can. That's amazing, man. You see, what we call the church, he built through those disciples. Ain't it amazing that the church, 2,000 years later, is minorly impacted by this virus, this pandemic? Yes, we would love to be face-to-face. -face, yet the gospel has still gone on. The Spirit of God is still moving. That's amazing. See, nothing can get in the way of God's kingdom. 
See, I love this moment. Our pastor preached on it. The thief on the cross. So not only do you have you and me, you got the 12 disciples, ragtag group, but you also have the thief on the cross. <laughs> this man spent his whole life as a non-believer and moments before dying, repents and gets saved. <laughs> do you talk about almost too far gone. He's literally like an hour away from losing it all and going to hell, yet he repents, gets saved, and Jesus welcomes him into that kingdom that we're all getting apart to build in. That's crazy. His last breath, one of them was getting saved. That's some raw material. And he walked in the doors with Jesus Christ to heaven. That's unreal. You aren't too rough around the edges. It's not too late. D, I love this one as well, the healing of the man with leprosy. There's so many. I mean, we could go on. I could do the whole alphabet twice of how many examples we have in Scripture, especially if you incorporate the Old Testament. But the healing of the man with leprosy. I love this moment in Mark chapter 1. I'm pretty sure this will be on the screen. Uh, Mark chapter 1 and verse 39. Look at this. Jesus went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you see Jesus' response? The carpenter, he says, it's move, he's moved with compassion. It says that Jesus is moved with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. He said, I am willing. And he told him, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Wow. This man on his knees, begging, fully aware of just how raw he was. Just how raw he was. You see, Jesus Christ can use raw materials to cause real miracles. He can do it. Raw materials to cause real miracles. And then number four. The last one for this week until we get to part two next week. The carpenter counts the cost. Number four, the carpenter counts the cost. Before a carpenter commits to the work and sacrifice that a project will take, he counts the cost of it before beginning it. You know, there's a whole lot of people who start well but don't finish well. It's because we didn't count the cost. I remember the moment when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to talk about a scriptural moment when he was counting the cost, man. He was in that garden praying before his crucifixion. And he's praying so hard. It's like his sweat is like drops of blood. He's praying so hard. He's thinking about the task he's going to take on in dying for the sins of the world and being separated from God on the cross. <laughs> in that moment, he counted the cost and decided it was worth it. He looked at us. He decided we were worth it. Can you imagine if Jesus would have looked at us and decided the opposite and said, actually, Father, they ain't worth it. I can't do this. Can you imagine? But he didn't. He counted the cost and said that we were a, a people worth building. We were a people worth entering his kingdom and being disciples of him. Jim Elliott was a missionary in 1950. He was 29 years old. I love his story. A 29-year-old missionary in 1950, the Lord put it on his heart, as I'm sure the Lord has pressed things on your heart. The Lord put it on Jim's heart to go to an unreached people group in Ecuador. 
Now you can imagine an unreached people group, completely cut off from the gospel, no idea who Jesus is or who their creator is. They're completely cut off from the gospel. They're an unreached people group in Ecuador. But here's the problem. Jim was thinking about going to this village, this group of people, but anyone else from the outside who had tried to go in was always brutally killed. They were always taken out. But Jim Elliott and four other men count the cost and decide it's worth it. They're going to try to go. The Lord had put it on their heart so much that it was worth risking their life. But they agreed. They agreed, watch this. They agreed that they would not kill a native if they didn't know Jesus Christ, which was all of them. They agreed that they would not take the life of a native. So they go to Ecuador, they get there, they're on the shore, they've got a boat, and they're looking, they're waiting for the people of Ecuador. And they look across the water at the other shore, and they see two women come out onto the shore. And they think that this is their time, they can do this. So they jump in their boat, and they start crossing the shore to go to them to share Jesus with them. It's in this moment that they get about halfway across the shore that they see the women are no more than decoys. At this moment in their boat, they hear a screeching sound right behind them. They turn around, they look at the shore they just came from, and they see dozens of men from this tribe standing on the shores holding spears. And you can imagine the feeling being trapped on this boat, seeing these men about to throw spears at you. Jim Elliott, it's recorded that he reached for his gun and pulled it out and started pointing. But he remembered the promise they had made that they would not kill a native who didn't know Jesus. He puts his gun down and the men launch the spears into the water and they kill Jim Elliott and his whole team and they find Jim Elliott's body down the river. He counted the costs and considered it worth it. What's amazing about this story is that it doesn't end there. Because of his bravery to try to get into this unreached people group in Ecuador, his wife and other women went two years later and saw the entire village get saved for Jesus Christ. <laughs> they go there and the whole village repents of their sins and they get on fire for Jesus Christ. Because Jim Elliott and his team counted the cost and realized it was worth it to try to reach them for Jesus can I ask you a question? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus Christ? Jesus did, of being obedient to the Father. And that cost took him to the cross where he was crucified and killed. And I'm not saying you and me got to be killed over our faith. But would your faith be worth it if you were in that boat? Would you be willing to die for Jesus Christ? Are you even willing to live for Jesus Christ? Because many of us don't live out our faith as disciples of his simply because we haven't counted the cost. For Christians, there's your challenge. For many of you, though, you're watching this stream and you have never given your life to Jesus. For some of you, this is your first time hearing this. And for all the Christians, I want you to pray right now. Wherever you are, you might be watching this alone. I want you to know something. Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you so much. But he doesn't love everything that you do. You and I are sinners. 
I've told lies. I've made mistakes before. I've fallen short. You've, you've broken the commands of God. We all have. You look at our world. It's a fallen world. But in God's love, he didn't leave you in your sin. <laughs> you know, some people will see you in a problem and leave you in it. God didn't leave you in your problem. In fact, he sent his solution down. <laughs> Jesus came down to this earth, healed people, fed people, loved people. And what we gave him in return for all that was torture, beating, and a crucifixion. And while he was on the cross, he took your sins, those sins you feel so bad for, so guilty for, so shameful for, those sins you think you can't find forgiveness for, he took those sins on the cross for you. And he was thinking about you while he was dying. But the story doesn't end there. As we celebrated yesterday, you already know Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave, defeating death, proving once and for all he's the Messiah and the Son of God. And what he asked us to do is not to climb a ladder, not to be perfect, not to make our way to heaven. He asked us to repent. I've said it several times tonight. You cannot get Jesus without repentance. You have to have a moment in your life where you are broken before the Lord, where you're confessing your sins and then giving your sins and willing to turn from those sins. To say, I'm done with this lifestyle, I'm done with this pain, I'm done with this greed, I'm walking away from it. And then the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever counted the cost and given your life to the one who died for you? Because you have a creator and you can know him. We're going to give you a time where you can reach out to us if you're interested in talking to someone more. Maybe you got questions about the gospel. You need answers. We're going to give you a time in a minute where you can reach out to us. But that prayer of faith, giving your life over to Jesus truly in your heart, you can do it right where you are. For those of you as Christians, I want you to know, God's issuing you a challenge tonight. He's issuing you a challenge to lead the way Jesus led. He loves you. And for many of you out there, you're struggling. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you that you would find freedom and peace in the midst of this virus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, first off, I pray for all the people out there right now that don't know who you are truly in their heart. God, I pray through this camera that you would soften their heart to your gospel, that they would repent, that they would believe, that they would receive you as their Savior. Father, I pray for all the Christians that are watching right now, all the ones you are calling to leadership. God, I pray that they would not be discouraged when they're hated on. God, I pray that they would see your vision and set goals to fulfill it. Father, I pray that they would realize they may be raw material, but you use raw material to cause real miracles. And Father, I pray that for all of us, we would count the cost of what it means to follow you. Heavenly Father, I lift up all the ones out there who have lost family members because of the coronavirus. I lift up all the college students who are struggling financially, whose families are struggling. God, I lift up all of our family members and our people who are in pain right now. God, I pray for your supernatural peace to take over in their life. Father, we love you and we thank you for this word tonight. God, we pray that you would produce fruit from it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.